Well, good morning, everyone. What a joy it is to be here with you. I always love, I look forward to the Lord's Day when the body of Christ can come together and sing praises to our exalted King, the Lord Jesus Christ. It is indeed a privilege to stand in a pulpit where the Word of God has gone forth so faithfully over the years and such a joy to be back. I didn't realize it had been nine years, so good to see everybody that we once knew and to make new friends that we haven't seen before. So I really love the name of your church too, Gospel of Grace. This morning we're going to talk about contending for the Gospel of Grace. It's been a joy to participate in the worship this morning, the love of your fellowship and the hope of your prayers. I think all of you would agree that uh, Christianity is under attack like never before. In fact, I think the greatest attack in Christianity today is on the purity and the exclusivity of the gospel of Christ. Christianity is probably experiencing its greatest crisis since the Dark Ages. During that crisis, God raised up a small number of reformers who stood boldly and courageously on the sure foundation of God's word. They refused to compromise or capitulate with the enemy of God's gospel. Fast forward 500 years to where we are today, and we see the passion for the truth that motivated the reformers has all but disappeared. The 21st century church has been contaminated by worldliness, ear-tickling messages, psychobabble, and entertainment that is no longer found in Bible-believing churches. The professing church in America today is no longer the pillar and the foundation of the truth. American Christianity is no longer the salt and light that our nation so desperately needs in these dark, dark times. The exclusivity of the gospel has been diluted or denied by pastors who are motivated more by church growth than the salvation of sinners. The compromise of the gospel has produced thousands of false converts who believe they are Christians, but they do not know the essentials of the gospel, and they do not know why Jesus had to die. Biblical ignorance has produced a fertile ground for deception in these last days. And you can see on the screen, as the decline of discernment takes place, we're seeing a rise of deception. And this really shouldn't surprise us if you're familiar with Matthew 24. Jesus said the last days would be marked by great deception with an abundance of false teachers and false prophets and false Christ, deceiving even the elect if possible. Tragically, as this deception increases, discernment in the church has been declining. Many are unable to discern truth from error anymore because they're not getting a steady diet of God's word. Churches like this are on the endangered species list in America. Churches that faithfully preach the word of God verse by verse and book by book, they are so hard to find. That is the most often question to our ministry. Where can I find a solid biblical church? So you are blessed to be part of this fellowship. What will happen in the next generation if this trend continues? The only way we can be part of the solution and not part of the problem is to contend earnestly for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. We must fight the good fight of faith against the fierce opposition to the truth 
There are many adversaries who outnumber us, and they are relentless in waging war with weapons of deceit. But God is with us as we defend the glory and honor of our Lord Jesus Christ and protect the purity and the exclusivity of his gospel for future generations. As saints of the Most High God, we have been given this great responsibility, and also it's an awesome privilege. Jude wrote, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that once and for all was delivered to the saints. In other words, this body of truth that we are to contend for was signed, sealed, and delivered in the first century. So anything that comes up against this treasure of faith, we are to contend against. And that includes what we talked about in the first hour. The word for contend in Greek means to agonize in a strenuous, ongoing struggle against the opposition. A strenuous, ongoing struggle. That means you and I need to be contending in an ongoing way. Not passively, not whenever we feel like it, but earnestly. Because the battle for the souls of men is ultimately a battle between the truth of God's word and the lies of the devil. We need to beware of the schemes of Satan. They are diabolical. This is what the Bible describes the schemes of Satan as. He prowls around like a roaring lion seeking for someone to devour. 1 Peter 5.8 His goal is to blind people from the light of the gospel and we can see he's doing a very good job of that. In 2 Corinthians 4.4 The prince of this world blinds the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of, of the gospel or the glory of Christ. A supernatural blindness. Another one of his schemes is to corrupt and distort the gospel. He holds people captive to do his will. So many people think they have free will. We need to take him to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 to 26. There we are told to pray for those in opposition to the gospel, that God would grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth so they can escape the snare of the devil who holds them captive to do his will. All unbelievers are held captive by the devil to do his will. And Jesus gave the only remedy for being released from Satan's captivity. John chapter 1, verses 31 to 32. If you're truly a disciple of mine, Jesus said, you will abide in my word, then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Free from what? Free from religious deception, free from religious bondage, free from the power of sin. Another scheme of the devil is to keep people from the Bible because he knows that truth will set them free. Satan's strategy has been to attack, misrepresent, and corrupt the Word of God. Ever since the Garden of Eden, he has been attacking the authority and the veracity of God's Word. We need to be aware that there is an intense battle going on now for the souls of men. Please don't forget that. Out those doors is a mission field. And people are out there being blinded from the truth of the gospel. No one is going to seek after the true God. We must seek after them. A couple of more schemes of the devil. He's using his servants who are false apostles and deceitful workers disguised as apostles of Christ to deceive, mislead, destroy, and kill. 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen to 15. 
He is causing apostasy with his servants who embrace deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. Paul says, In latter times some will depart from the faith. And what will they follow? Doctrines of demons. So as the God of this world and the prince of the power of the air, he is at work in all the sons of disobedience. Ephesians 2.2. 2. Don't miss this. Paul tells us Satan is at work in the lives of all unbelievers. And he's using them to accomplish his goals. What is the importance of contending for the gospel of grace? Well, Jesus said salvation hinges on hearing and believing his word. John chapter 5, verse 24. And faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of Christ. You and I are the instruments God uses to proclaim his gospel. Because faith comes when people hear the gospel and repent and believe. What are you and I to do when we know someone is hearing and believing a false gospel? Do we love people enough to warn them? Do we love our Lord enough to defend his glory and honor? Do we love his gospel enough to contend for its purity and its exclusivity? We're living in a time where Christians are following their favorite personalities rather than the word of God. We need to challenge people, test every man's teaching with the word of God. Many people are being led astray and deceived by false teachers. We need to sound the alarm and use the truth of God to expose and correct all false teachers. We have a great weapon, don't we? Paul writes in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. We must contend for the pure gospel to make sure people are hearing and believing the gospel according to Scripture. And we need to get the gospel right. This morning I want to take you through what the message of the gospel is, the person of the gospel, the promise of the gospel. Then we're going to look at the distortion of the gospel, the exclusivity of the gospel, and the response to the gospel. There is only one saving response to the gospel. So as we contend for the purity of the gospel, we need to look at each one of these in order to make sure we hit the target dead center. Before the Lord saved me, I was down at Cape Kennedy, Florida as a rocket scientist. One of the first things I learned when astronauts re-enter the Earth's atmosphere, they need to get that angle of entry precisely correct. Because if they come into light, they will skip off the Earth's atmosphere into outer space. If they come in too heavy, the rocket ship will burn up. You're saying, well, Mike, what has that got to do with the gospel? We need to get the gospel precisely correct. Because if we add anything to it, we'll end up burning up in the eternal lake of fire. If we take anything away from the gospel, people that believe that gospel will skip off into outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. We must protect the purity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let's look at the message of the gospel. And I'm probably speaking to people who have all heard and believed the gospel, but there may be one here that 
has never heard the pure and exclusive gospel. You can really look at the gospel in four elements. It begins with God, who is our eternal creator. He is majestic in holiness, as we see in Exodus fifteen eleven. What is the foundation of his throne? Righteousness and justice, which means he cannot let the guilty go unpunished. Divine justice must be satisfied by our holy God and creator. Well, God is holy and man is sinful. He is guilty because all have sinned. Romans 3.23. The punishment for sin is death, and the second death is the lake of fire. Romans 6.23 and Revelation 20.14. We need to let sinners know that you can do nothing to save yourselves. The message must always drive home the character of God's holiness and the reality of man's sinful and helpless condition. Well, the third element of the gospel is that God didn't leave us in our hopeless and helpless condition. He provided a Savior in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is man's blessed hope, our great God and Savior, as we see in Titus 2.13. God demonstrated his love, his mercy, and his grace in sending his only Son to save sinners. Luke 19.10 gives you the theme of his gospel. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. After being born of a virgin and living a perfect life, Jesus was crucified and died to satisfy divine justice, to reconcile sinners to God. The eternal sin debt was nailed to the cross, as we see in Colossians 2, 13 and 14. And then he rose victorious from the dead. We must warn everyone we are witnessing to that God is so holy and just that he must punish every sin that has ever been committed by every man and woman that has ever lived. He cannot overlook sin. And he satisfies divine justice in one of two places, either at Calvary Cross, where Christ becomes a substitute who, for all those who repent and believe in him, but for those who reject him or say, no, thank you, Jesus, one day they will meet him at the great white throne. And their divine justice will be satisfied when the sinner is thrown into the eternal lake of fire. Only a fool would reject the Lord Jesus Christ as their sinless substitute. But yet so many people do because they're blinded by the prince of this world. And then the fourth element of the gospel is man's only response for salvation. And that is to repent and believe the gospel. Only when confessed sinners realize their hopeless condition and see Christ as a merciful Lord who purchased full atonement for their sins will they turn to him in repentance and faith. Remember, the gospel is an announcement to believe. We see the announcement in Luke chapter 2, verses 10 to 11. It's an invitation to be accepted, as we see in 2 Corinthians five, eighteen to 20. It's also a command to be obeyed, as we see in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17. What happens to those who disobey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ? So that's the gospel message. Let's look at the person of the gospel. Jesus is the eternal Lord God and Savior. He is our prophet, priest, and king, and he cannot be divided. He's the last prophet representing God to his people. And he's the perfect high priest representing his people to God. 
As the perfect high priest, he offered himself the perfect sacrifice to a perfect God who demands perfection. And then he cried out, in victory, it is finished. We must confess and believe that Jesus is Lord for salvation. Over 250 times he is referred to as Lord in the Bible. I had just given a message at one of the seminaries in America, and afterwards the students were invited to ask the speaker questions. The first question came up and said, we believe Jesus is our Savior, but we don't believe we have to take him as Lord to be saved. So I went to the Word of God and I said, well, have you considered Romans chapter 10, verse 9 and 10? Well, Paul writes, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. And have you considered the words of Paul when the Philippian jailer asked him, what must I do to be saved? Paul said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. I said, it doesn't sound like it's an option when you look at Scripture. But this is what's happening today. People are dividing Christ, saying we can take him as Savior, but not his Lord. We need to be aware of another Jesus. Some Christians take him as Savior, but not Lord. Mormons believe he is a God, but not the only God. They believe he was first a man who became God. Jehovah Witnesses believe he is Savior, but not the eternal God. Catholics and Orthodox believe he is God, but not the all-sufficient Savior. Jews and Muslims say he is a prophet, but he is not God. So as you can see, nearly everyone believes in Jesus, but what a person believes about him is the key. Here's the critical issue. Jesus said in John 8, 24, unless you believe I am, you will die in your sins. There's no option. We must warn people of another Jesus being preached. If someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the one we preached, or if you receive a different spirit or a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it. The words of Paul in 2 Corinthians eleven four. Why is this so important? Because another Jesus always leads to another gospel. If you are not declaring Jesus and all of his sufficiency, then you need another gospel to instruct people what they must do in order to be saved. But when you proclaim Jesus as he is gloriously revealed in Scripture, then you can proclaim salvation is by grace alone because the Lord Jesus Christ has done everything to save sinners completely and forever. I love the hymn. When we sing, it was my sin that held Jesus to the cross. And... It is by grace that I am forgiven. What a glorious gospel we have to proclaim. And there have been times in the past where I've embarrassed my wife for proclaiming this glorious gospel of grace. I remember one time we were having breakfast at a restaurant in Munster, Texas, prior to going to the church to preach. And I looked over the people in the restaurant, and Munster represents about 80% Roman Catholic. And so I quickly did the math. There was about 50 people in the restaurant, and I thought probably 45 are Roman Catholic. 
So as we got up to leave, I, something came over me, and I picked up a spoon, and I started banging on the glass. And the whole restaurant came quiet. And I said, now that I have your attention, I, I just wanted you to know I came all the way from Dallas so I can show you how you can have your sins completely forgiven and be reconciled to God. And I'm going to be giving that message across the street, and all of you are welcome to come. Well, we walked out of the restaurant. My wife looked at me and said, Munster, Texas, no problem. But if you ever do that in Dallas, I will kill you. (laughs) Well, the fact that I'm still alive, you know that I haven't done it in Dallas. Well, let's look at the true Jesus. He alone was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of a virgin so he could be both the eternal God and man to atone for man's sin. He had to become our kinsman redeemer. He alone lived a sinless life so that he could offer himself to satisfy divine justice for condemned sinners. He alone rose from the dead to declare victory over the power of sin and death. No one else qualifies to be God's perfect man and man's perfect God. Have you ever considered the all-sufficient work of Jesus Christ? You know, Roman Catholics and anybody who is in a works righteousness salvation will never let go of what they are doing to help save themselves until they know that Christ is sufficient. Consider everything he did to save sinners. Righteousness was perfected. We're going to look at each one of these in more detail. Divine justice was satisfied. Blood was shed. Redemption was paid. Sins were forgiven. Reconciliation was achieved. Death was conquered. Salvation was secured. So let's look at each one. Righteousness was perfected. We know from the cradle to the cross, Jesus lived in perfect obedience to the law so that his righteousness can be credited to those who trust him. My favorite verse in the whole Bible is 2 Corinthians 5.21. There's a typo there. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He who knew no sin, that is Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. I consider that the greatest exchange in human history. By faith, Christ takes all of our sin, and what does he give us in return? His perfect righteousness. We see in Romans 5.17, that is a gift given to those who have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The righteousness of God is our only passport into heaven. We must warn people. Jesus Christ also satisfied divine justice. We've seen that God must punish sin, and he cannot let the guilty go free. Romans three twenty one to 26. Justice was satisfied when God provided a sinless substitute to die in the place of sinners. Isaiah 53, 5, he was crushed for our iniquities. Blood was shed. The animal sacrifices in the Old Testament foreshadowed the Savior's blood being poured out for the forgiveness of sin. In Hebrews 9.22, we see without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. According to the law, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. We also see that redemption was paid. What was the price of our redemption? 
the precious blood of Jesus. It makes the blood of Jesus the most, com- the most precious commodity the world has ever known. You see, everyone is born enslaved to sin, and we're all under the, course, the curse of God's law. Christ had to pay for our redemption, Galatians 3.13. The apostle Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 to 19, You were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood, the blood of Christ. Sins were forgiven at the cross. Christ's death canceled out their certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us. They were nailed to the cross. Reconciliation was achieved. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against us. If you've been reconciled to God through Christ, you've been given an awesome responsibility and a great privilege because those who have been reconciled have now been given the ministry of reconciliation. We are to plead with people to be reconciled to God. Christ died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. We also know that death was conquered. The sting of death is sin, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 57. If you've ever been to Israel, what a joy it is to walk into this tomb. When you walk in, you see a sign, he's not here, he has risen. When Jesus took his last breath, death was swallowed up in victory. And salvation was secured. The good shepherd protects his flock and loses not one. We know that salvation is secured by the power of God and also by the promises of Almighty God. To every believer, Jesus says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. What a glorious Savior we have to proclaim. I know a lot of you have traveled on the airplanes, and uh, I don't know if you've experienced the same thing, but I had just given a long all-day conference, and I was really tired, just wanted to get on the plane and fall asleep. And so that's what I did. And as we were still at the gate, I hear this businessman pull out his cell phone, and he's speaking so loud that people 10 rows up and 10 rows back and hear every detail of his transaction. And I'm getting more and more agitated because I'm so tired, I just want to fall asleep. And then it hit me that I have business to conduct as well. So I pulled out my cell phone and I pretended I was talking to someone about the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And about five minutes into giving the gospel, my wife elbows me in the side. She said, you better hope your phone doesn't start ringing. (laughs) But we do have a glorious God to proclaim. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, became the Son of Man because he had prophecy to fulfill, God to reveal, darkness to dispel, truth to disclose, error to expose, justice to satisfy, the law to fulfill, sin to forgive, righteousness to impute, sinners to save, people to sanctify, 
redemption to purchase, a church to build, a bride to purify, freedom to grant, heaven to open, life to give, death to destroy, and Satan to conquer. He is worthy of all of our honor and praise and glory forever and ever. Don't you long for the day that we can sit at the feet of our Savior and praise him for all he did to save us completely and forever? Well, the third element we want to look at this morning is the promise of the gospel. Eternal life is the promise of the gospel, and it is secured by the power of God. We see in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 5, that our eternal inheritance is held in heaven by the very power of God. Is there anyone or anything in this universe that is more powerful than Almighty God? Our salvation is secured by the power of God. It's also secured by the promises of God. Jesus promises that he will raise us up on the last day. It's also secured by the perpetual intercession of Jesus, as we see in Hebrews 7.25. The Lord Jesus Christ rose from the dead, ascended into heaven. He's now at the right hand of God as our defense attorney, as our intercessor. Eternal life is also secured by the proof of his unconditional love. Nothing, as we see in Romans 8.35, can separate us from the love of God. Our eternal life and assurance is also secured by the protection of the good shepherd. We have a good shepherd in heaven that is watching over his flock. If one of us starts to wander, one who has been born again of the Spirit of God, the good shepherd will leave the 99 and go after the one and bring him back into the fold. Eternal life is secured by the permanence of divine gifts. In Romans eleven twenty nine, we see that the gifts of God are irrevocable. And eternal life is secured by the plain meaning of the word eternal. Eternal means everlasting, never-ending life. What a promise we have to share as we witness to people who have no assurance And can I tell you, if you don't already know, over half of professing Christianity denies or rejects the promise and assurance of eternal life. What should we do when people reject the promise? We need to evangelize them. Because if you're not believing the promise of the gospel, you're not believing the gospel. 1 John 5.13, we read, John has written to those who believe in the name of the Son of God that they may know right here and now that they have in their possession eternal, everlasting life with the Savior. These things I have written, John said. What things? The things he wrote in the first four chapters. So we need to encourage people as we witness to them to read 1 John and see that you can know for sure your eternal destiny. Let's look at the exclusivity of the gospel. Jesus said you must enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and there are those and those who find it are few. Matthew 7, verses 13 to 14. 
Jesus said you must strive to enter through the narrow door, Luke 13, 24. What did Jesus mean, you must strive? Aren't we saved by grace? What did he mean, we must strive? Well, in the context, Jesus said many will seek to enter but will not be able. When you look at Matthew 7, you see that Jesus is giving this in the context that there will be false teachers. So I guess you can see what Jesus is talking about. There will be false teachers standing in front of the narrow gate saying it's not here, it's there. Go to the broad way. There you will find eternal life. So if you really want to know the true way, what are you going to have to do? Diligently search the scriptures to test every man's teaching to see who is speaking the truth. Claims of exclusivity are often met with resistance in place where different religious paths are accepted. In fact, Christians who stand firmly on the exclusivity of the gospel will be ridiculed, mocked, and considered intolerant. Has anybody called you intolerant because you say there is only one way through Jesus Christ? Why is there so much antagonism toward the exclusivity of the gospel? It's because our society is deeply influenced by by pluralism and by postmodernism. What does postmodernism teach? Your truth is just as valid as mine. Your truth is subjective. You cannot know objective truth anymore. Many pastors are being more influenced by postmodernism. They're being more inclusive for the sake of ecumenical unity. Oh, how it grieves me when I see so many of our evangelical leaders compromising the gospel of Jesus Christ by calling for unity with Roman Catholics and Orthodox. The last unity accord was signed in 2009, the Manhattan Declaration. Do you know that now over 640,000 evangelicals have signed a document stating that Catholics, Orthodox, and Evangelicals share a common faith in the gospel? Do you see what this does to evangelism? If people believe their leaders who have said that Catholics share a common faith, that puts the mission field off limits. Why bother evangelizing if they're already our brothers and sisters in Christ? This is why we need to contend earnestly for the faith against such people as this. My wife and I met with the president of the seminary I graduated from. We spent 45 minutes pleading with him to take his name off the Manhattan Declaration. He said, but it's a document that calls for unity among all faiths so that we can stand against the social ills of our country. I said, people already know where you stand on pro-life and pro-marriage, but now they don't know where you stand on Roman Catholicism. You're such an influence that people are signing it because of you. You know what he said? Well, Al Mohler signed it. I said, you just made my point. People are signing it because of our Christian leaders. We need to speak up and contend earnestly for the faith. Well, unfortunately, he never removed his name, even though we pleaded with him. But that's what it means to take a stand, to speak up for the truth of God's word, for the glory of Christ and the sanctity of his church. Because of Satan's fierce opposition to the gospel, his legions of false teachers are redirecting gullible souls 
to the broad gate that leads to destruction. You must ask the question, how can only a few find the narrow gate, as Jesus has said here? Doesn't 86% of America profess to be Christians? Are you beginning to believe that of those 86%, only a few are born-again Christians? We have so many false converts in our churches today because they've been evangelized by a compromised gospel. They have been evangelized by unbiblical methods of evangelism. We must warn people that both the narrow way and the broad way will take you to your Creator. When you come face to face with Him, He will either be your merciful Savior who satisfied divine justice because you trusted in Him as your sinless substitute, or He will be a sin-avenging judge who will demand justice because you neglected His only way of forgiveness. This is a sobering reality. We must warn people that one day you will meet your Creator and He will either be a merciful Savior or a sin-avenging judge. Well, the gospel is exclusive because of Jesus. Peter said there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we are to be saved, Acts 4.12. And Paul said there is one mediator between God and men, that is the man Christ Jesus, 1 Timothy 2, 5. And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the way for those who are lost. He is the truth for those who are deceived. And he is the very life for those who are dead in their sins. That's why there's a great commission. We must proclaim to the world that there is no other Savior other than Jesus Christ. There is no other way to be saved. What do we mean when we talk about the gospel's purity and exclusivity? Well, we must defend the purity of the gospel by proclaiming the sufficiency of Christ. Nothing can be added to his perfect, finished work. What do we mean by his exclusivity? We must defend the exclusivity by proclaiming the necessity of Christ. No one can be saved except through the one mediator, our Lord Jesus Christ. There are many people today who name the name of Christ but are trusting in what they must do instead of what Christ has done. Jesus did everything necessary to save sinners completely and forever. Anyone who thinks Christ did only 99% and now they must do their part is woefully deceived and they have insulted our all-sufficient Savior. If anyone had reason to boast in his religious accomplishments, it was the Apostle Paul. Are you familiar with his resume in Philippians 3, verses 3 to 9? He had every reason to boast... But what did he say in the end? I consider all of this rubbish for knowing Christ Jesus as my Savior. Paul exchanged his religion for a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what we must urge everyone to do who is trapped in religious deception. Religion cannot save anyone. Your works cannot save anyone. 
Well, now let's look at the distortions of the gospel. How is the gospel distorted? By adding or removing requirements for salvation. Paul drove a stake in the ground in Galatians 1.6. If anyone distorts the gospel of Jesus Christ, they are to be anathema, which means they are to be turned over to God for destruction. There's another anathema given in 1 Corinthians. Those who do not love God are anathema. So Paul is elevating the purity and the exclusivity of the gospel on the same level as loving our Lord Jesus Christ. Adding anything to the all-sufficient work of Christ nullifies the saving grace of God. Paul made this clear in Romans 11.6. He said, if it is by grace... It is not of works, otherwise grace is not grace. You see, the devil knows this. That's why he has created all of these works righteousness religions. Because he knows that if you add anything to the grace of God, you've nullified the only means by which God will save sinners. Anything removed from the gospel makes the distortion powerless to save sinners. And we know from Romans 1.16, the gospel is the very power of God for the salvation of all those who believe it. Tragically, there are many who have gone to their grave believing a false and fatal gospel. More the reason that we need to earnestly contend for the gospel of grace and proclaim it. What do we mean that nothing can be added to the gospel Well, the gospel is distorted when baptism, religious rituals, good works, or law-keeping are required for salvation. And those of you who grew up Roman Catholic knew these are the things that you must do in order to be saved. This is a false and fatal gospel, adding requirements for salvation. There is a fatal difference between what we do and what Christ has done. What you do for God to merit salvation nullifies justifying grace and it insults the finished and all-sufficient work of Christ. What Christ has done for you is the glorious gospel of grace and God alone is glorified for his mercy. There will be many in the lake of fire who live their life with good intentions. They gave generously to charity They prided themselves in their integrity and their good works. Tragically, they believed they could justify themselves before a holy and righteous God by what they were doing, by their works of righteousness. Oh, how I grieve for those who are where I was. There was a a verse in seminary that really impressed upon me the need to reach out to Roman Catholics. We were studying Romans chapter 10. And there Paul was praying for the salvation of the Israelites. He said they had a zeal for God, but it wasn't based on knowledge. And not knowing God's righteousness, they sought to obtain their own righteousness. And as I studied those verses, I thought there are so many Catholics who have a zeal for God. But they too do not know God's righteousness requires perfect righteousness for entrance into heaven. They do not know that Jesus Christ gives his righteousness as a gift to those who trust him alone for salvation. We must contend for the gospel. 
Do you know the essentials that are most often removed from the gospel of Jesus Christ? It's easy to remember them because they all begin with an R. So often we leave out the resurrection of Jesus. There is a church in Dallas we went to visit, and in the bulletin it said there's two steps for salvation. Believe you're a sinner and believe Jesus died for your sins. The next week I called the pastor. I said, did you know you gave an incomplete gospel? He said, what do you mean? I said, you left out the resurrection. Paul wrote, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you're still in your sins. He had already printed 3,000 bulletins for the next week. He had a teachable spirit. He tore up the 3,000 bulletins and added the resurrection to his gospel. Another R that is often removed is repentance. Acts 17.30, God commands all people everywhere to repent. And another R that's often left out is the righteousness of God. As we just saw in Romans 10, being ignorant of God's righteousness, people seek to establish their own. To remove the righteousness of God from the gospel is to remove man's only passport into heaven. We also need to contend against man-centered gospels. They exalt man and his importance and diminish God and his significance. They are stripped down to avoid the hard teachings of Jesus. They emphasize God's love while ignoring his holiness, justice, and hatred of sin. You see a picture of Joel Osteen here who boasts in having the largest church in America. Hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people tune into his broadcast. But he has a man-centered gospel, stripping away the essential elements. We had Costi Hen preach at our church in Dallas last Sunday, and he came out of this prosperity gospel, and now he's exposing it. But it's also known as the health and wealth gospel, the name it and claim it gospel. I used to call it the blab it and grab it gospel, the word of faith gospel. It's a perversion of the true gospel in that it teaches the purpose of Christ's death was to create material gain for those who have enough faith. The word of faith pastors preach only what unregenerate sinners want to hear. There are many adherents to this false gospel today. People like Kenneth Copeland, Creflo Dollar, T.D. Jakes, Joyce Meyer, Joel Osteen, Francis Chan, Paula White, Benny Hinn, and many others. One of the most effective ways they're sending their prosperity message into evangelical churches today is through music, through Hillsong music and through Bethel music. It's all coming in. These false teachers and those followers that follow them need to know that no one will be a candidate for salvation until they know they stand condemned before a sin-avenging God of righteousness and justice. More than ever, we need to contend for the purity and the exclusivity of the gospel against these prosperity teachers. The largest church in the Dallas-Fort Worth area is now just a mile and a half down from our church. It boasts of 175,000 people on five different campuses. 
It's so sad because we often tell people we moved to South Lake, Texas to be close to our church. Oh, so you go to Gateway Church? No. That's where everybody else goes. Now we move because we went to Countryside Bible Church that faithfully preaches the whole counsel of God. We also need to contend against the inclusive gospels. Pope Francis preaches an inclusive gospel. According to him, atheists and non-believers can go to heaven as long as they are sincere and follow their conscience. Even Muslims, Pope Francis says, are part of God's plan of salvation. As I shared in the first hour, there's no better time to witness to Roman Catholics today because they do not know where to look for truth. They know this man is not representing historic Roman Catholicism. Some even know that he's going against the Bible. But we need to point Roman Catholics to the sure foundation for truth. Christ is the personification of truth. He said, my word is truth. He said, I came to testify to the truth. So why would anyone look anywhere else other than Christ and his word for the truth? So what is the only saving response to the gospel? Well, Jesus began and ended his ministry with a command to repent. His first command, Mark 1.15, repent and believe the gospel. At the end of his ministry, he said repentance for the forgiveness of sins must be proclaimed in his name. Paul preached repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. There are many responses to the gospel, but there is only one saving response. Many of the popular responses that you will hear today are not found in the Bible. You cannot be saved by repeating a sinner's prayer or asking Jesus into your heart or believing in a generic God or accepting Jesus as your Savior or doing unto others as you would have them do unto you or discover the purpose-driven life, or believe in yourself, or have healthy self-esteem. None of these are found in the Bible. Now, regarding the sinner's prayer, if someone has prayed the sinner's prayer coupled with repentance and faith, no problem. But so often today, we see well-meaning evangelists ask people to repeat a prayer But how do they know they're not honoring God with their lips when their hearts are still far from them? When you give the glorious gospel of grace and you show that the person you're talking to is a condemned sinner under the wrath of God, you will not teach them, you will not have to teach them what they must do. It's just like if you're drowning in a lake, you're not going to have to say, now you must holler help before you can be rescued. No, take them to Romans chapter 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. And then I say, look at verse 13. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. I'll never forget a young man that after hearing the gospel for an hour and I read him these verses, he bowed his head and he cried out to the Lord, save me, Lord. That's what we need to do, instruct people according to the Bible to repent and believe it. Well, repentance is not an option. 
In Acts 17, verses 30 to 31, Paul preached, God commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. Does that leave anybody out? All people everywhere? There is no option. So, what must we do after hearing a message like this? Fight the good fight of faith. Put on the armor of God. Fight the good fight of faith for the glory of Christ, for the sanctity of his church, and for the purity of his gospel. If we don't contend earnestly for the faith, the sanctity of the church is at risk. If we don't defend the purity and the exclusivity of the gospel, how will unbelievers know how they can be saved? We need to warn those who are being deceived. Jesus said in Matthew 7, 15, there will be many false teachers. They're here. They've crept into our churches. That's why Jude wrote his epistle. He wanted to write about our common salvation, but he was moved to plead with people to earnestly contend for the faith. We need to take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. We need to be faithful to the Great Commission. There are so many ways that we can proclaim the gospel. I have the privilege of being on radio occasionally, and not too long ago, Jan Markell interviewed me on a chapter in a book that we both co-authored. And... There was such a response to this message. Over 120,000 people watched it on YouTube. And there was one person in particular that heard the message. And she was a devout Roman Catholic of 62 years. After hearing the message, she went to our website. She started reading articles. She started watching videos. And then she called us. And she told us that she was a devout Catholic that she had heard the message, that she had been to our website. And for the next 45 minutes, we led her through the promise of eternal life, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And at the end of the phone call, she cried out to the Lord Jesus Christ to save her. And then she said, I am so full of joy knowing that my eternity is secure, that I know the moment I die, I'm going to be with our Lord in heaven. But then she said, what am I going to do? I need to find another church. Can you help me? I said, well, where do you live? She said, Green Bay. Well, in the providence of God, we were scheduled to go to Green Bay in two weeks. I was going to preach a two-day conference. And so I gave her the name of the church, and I called the pastor, and I said, there's going to be a visitor coming to the church. Please take her under your wing and begin to disciple her in truth. So we had a chance to meet her when we went up there two weeks later. This woman is so full of joy. She is so excited to tell everybody in her circle of influence the glorious gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So that is what we need to do. Whatever opportunity the Lord gives us. At our church, we go out on Friday evenings to South Lake Town Square where people are sitting on park benches, waiting for a restaurant reservation. Just a great opportunity to go and proclaim the gospel and be faithful to the Great Commission. 
And even if you only have a few moments, you still have an opportunity to leave a gospel track behind. I want to share with you um, a resource that we have. When I ask people what's keeping you from being more faithful to the Great Commission, many people say, I just don't feel like I know the gospel well enough to communicate it. So I put together what I believe are the 12 most important words of the gospel. And these are individual words on 12 different cards. And it all begins with God who is holy. And it leads to man who is a sinner and Jesus Christ is the only hope. But on the back of each one of these cards, you see four bullet points that define and explain what each word means. So this is an excellent opportunity not only for you to go deeper into the gospel, but it's also an excellent tool to bring out with your family dinner, bring out when you're having people over for dinner. Um, We've actually laid them out at the State Fair of Texas, and we asked people, based on eternity being forever, which word would you like to know more about so that you know that you have eternal life? And it's amazing how often they pick up the word titled sin, It's like they know they're a sinner, they're looking for a loophole. But what's neat about this is it gives them an opportunity to guide the conversation. When they pick up one card and look at it, then you can take them to another card until you've completed the gospel. Please don't underestimate gospel tracts. Of course, make sure they're good ones. We don't want to give any gospel tract away that calls people to repeat a prayer. But we have seven different tracks. Three of them are dedicated to reaching Roman Catholics and four to reaching anyone that's deceived. Contending for the Gospel is a book that I wrote for the purpose of contending against the ecumenical movement and the prosperity gospel. Preparing for Eternity, a great handbook for you to learn how to reach out to the world's largest mission field. It's also a great book to give to Roman Catholics because it's written in the spirit of love. DVDs, this is the way we began this ministry 30 years ago, inviting people over to watch a gospel video and then answering questions. Great way to make the gospel known. And don't forget our website, proclaimingthegospel.org. A wealth of information for you to be equipped, to be encouraged, to contend earnestly for the faith, and to be faithful to the Great Commission. So I just want to thank you for the privilege and the opportunity to share a burden that I have with all of you this morning. May God give us all a greater compassion for those who are perishing. Let's pray. Our Father, we are indebted to your amazing grace and mercy. May we never forget our hopeless estate before you delivered us from the kingdom of darkness into the glorious light of your Son. Father, when you, were, when you caused us to be born again, I know you gave me a new purpose for living. I quickly discovered that there's only two things in this life that are eternal, and that is your word and the souls of men. Help us to focus on the two things that will last throughout all eternity. We ask for your protection with the armor of God, the shield of faith, the sword of the Spirit, for the spiritual battles that surround us. And Father, mostly we pray you'd give us a boldness and courage and a holy zeal to contend earnestly for the gospel 
for the glory of our Savior, for the sanctity of his church, and for all those who are perishing. We love you, Lord, and praise your holy name. Amen.